Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is, of course, Easter Sunday, which, if you're religious, is an incredibly important date in your calendar. I mean, assuming you're Christian, possibly the most important date in your calendar. And if you're not religious, it's a time to piggyback on religious sentiment and enjoy acres of delicious golden... What? No, chocolate eggs. I was imagining a better time where there were actual golden eggs. Yeah, not 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 much of not much eating on a golden egg, Gary. Really? No, I think there's a lot of eating, Michael. Not much teeth left, then I suppose. But anyway, I think you you just gnaw on it like a Fabergé egg. It's an acquired skill. Just a question: the chocolate, which was used as a a sacrifice to the gods and as a in the ceremonies. Of the Aztecs and the Mayas and the Tacos, that should become so closely associated with the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. Sicut resurrexit, alleluia. It used to be a sacrifice to the gods, now it's a sacrifice to us. Of course, the Mexicans put in chili con carne. There you go. But it's not that unusual because the Tuscans put chocolate in their boar daubs and pigeon stews and things. So, Frankly, I think chocolate is overrated for the most part. A couple of people outside Florence called Amadei make absolutely fantastic chocolate. Mostly from uh, Venezuela. Small island off Venezuela, but there you go. Anyway, chocolate. There you are, Gary. That's the big question that we're talking about, chocolate. It's, it's the hot new thing that we recommend people try if they haven't. I have a suspicion, Gary, it's going to be a success, and especially with the ladies. Anyway, so it's half of all COVID-19 deaths are in nursing homes. Michael? Now, there is a tendency here to jump in and bait the government around the head when we go back to the directive from we was the 10th of march where the the previous the previous advice had been that there should be special precautions in fact i think a lot of uh, nursing homes had off their own bat introduced new protocols and fairly severe restrictions on the access to the uh, people in these under their care and they said, okay, we're going to do this. And, uh, we're going to actually, they were given the instructions to loosen it up. However, I think we have to also recognize that there is a possibility that one of them, it's not actually necessarily the case that the infections have been brought into the homes by visitors, although that is a possibility. And I think whatever is the cause of this outbreak, that the, the change uh, in direction was a mistake. But rather, most care homes, well, person, medical personnel, if you talk about nurses, also doctors, although doctors are less important, work in more than one home, Gary. They can work in a whole, they can work in three or four in a, in a, in a, in a local area at, at, in, a, in a week or even more. And the chances are that it's actually care, care staff or medical personnel have been principally responsible for the spread and at least at the so rapid spread of the disease into the care homes. No, we don't know yet, and we may never know. But it is at least, it's an alternative to possibility that it was brought in. I suppose you can't say about the change of the direction is whatever had been the possible outcomes. And when you change the, when the, Directions regarding restrictions of visiting were changed. It became inevitable that you're looking at fairly serious hotspot events. I mean, right now, I mean, I know, was it a week ago we were looking at 40 hotspots? 
Where are we? Yeah, 40. Uh, we're well over 100. How different are we? That I suppose that's one thing we're going to have to look at, I suppose, is how different is the 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 presence, the epidemiology of this in care homes in Ireland to other countries. Because, sadly, once it gets into these places, the, the level of contagion and effect, the capacity for infection must be very high. You've got people living in small and small close places, uh, cheek by jowl, they're going to have infection. You're going to have people with uh, compromised or weaker immune systems, and you're going to have people with a significant number of them with underlying diseases like diabetes, cardiac uh, problems, and respiratory issues. So that's going to mean that there are going to be much higher levels. Even if we're seeing the infection level drop off, the new new cases drop off, in the general population, quite significantly, we're going to see a death rate which would be, if we're talking about the, if the number of cases was drawn at random from the general population, would be much lower than it actually will be, which is very sad. But I don't. I suppose, Gary, you've noticed there's been a fight, there's a big de- a debate going on at the moment whether there should be a debate or not, whether the what the role of have journalists been asking enough hard questions? I mean, I did see Fergal Bauer as uh, the chief medical officer. He said that um, a young girl wrote to him asking when the zoos would reopen and how would the CMO respond to that question. So I think we can safely say that the mainstream media is really it's focusing on the hard-hitting questions. Now, to be fair, uh, um, I've been watching. I don't know if you've been sad enough to be in this house. You know the the press briefings. Uh, I've been watching those, and David Quinn, who, by the way, wrote a really excellent article last in last week's Sunday Times. Anybody wants to have a look at it, you can get it somewhere. Uh, David Quinn, for example, has been asking some pretty pointed questions, and has been getting it kind of in the neck because of it. But I suspect a degree of that is more the fact that it's David asking the question rather than the validity of the question itself. I would suspect you're right on that. I mean, it it was a weird one, actually. I was watching the British press briefings, and the editor of Lad Bible was there. And uh, he asked probably the best question of the lot that had been asked. And he's not in the Westminster lobby. He's not, like, he's not the correspond- senior health correspondent from the Times. No, but he asked a very good question about um, the levels of compliance the British police are actually seeing yeah. with restrictions on movement. And I only saw because there was an Oxford academic who basically went, that's one of the best questions I've seen out of all of these things. God help us. <laughs> lad Bible. Well, well done, Lad Bible. Though it was basically, it was just, um, I mean, yes, Lad Bible actually has a massive audience. And that chap is a journalist with, I'd say, about a decade's, decades experience. But, and I've been watching some of the American briefings as well. And in all cases, a lot of the political uh, correspondence questions have been really bad. Just really poor questions. There's always going to be a a tendency among most people at a time like this that everybody wants to be on on the team. We have to be all working together. We're all on Team Ireland here. We're all going to get together. We're going to beat the virus. We're going to be united. We're going to fight it. It's going to be great. 
And you want to be on the team and you want to be liked and you don't want people being nasty to you and saying you're not on the team. Because I suspect many of the people who, used to, who write for the newspapers today were never picked for the team, Gary. But I, it's kind of dangerous, isn't it? Like, if we look at the... We look at the regulations that have been coming in regarding the restrictions on movement and stuff. The legislation that was brought in, I think you could ask, I don't know what the result would be, but you could certainly ask the question, to what extent is the, is the minister acting within, is within the powers granted to him by the Dáil, and to what extent perhaps is he exceeding those powers? We have a constitution. Constitution guarantees, for example, things like religious freedom and the, the, the right to practice religion. But today, I can tell you, Gary, that across the country, there are many churches that are closed. And the social spacing uh, rules and the rules regarding two kilometers, for example, would stop many people being able to, to attend their church. I mean, will, if you stopped, if, the, if you were stopped by a guard, and you exceeded your two-kilometer radius to go to Mass, will the minister consider that to be essential? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No, it's... it's. I can't, I can't read Harris's mind. Ah, you disappoint me. I thought you'd have a little bit of a deep insight into all of them. You could read them like a book. Anyway. No, I mostly think they're fairly interchangeable. That's why I'm terrible at remembering politicians' names. Oh, Harris is his own special self. To the extent that there's disagreement, it's a, you're seeing people for, play this football game of, well, which team is better? Is it Team Sweden or is it Team Ireland? Team Trump? Team Boris? All this. Right now, we know very little and we're not going to know a whole lot for a long time. So we should ask questions respectfully, nicely and politely. We should insist on knowing what, there's a lack of transparency, certainly. I'd quite like to know what, um, Odohan thinks of uh, thinks if he acted correctly in relation to the uh, nursing homes there. Yeah, that's a reasonable question to ask. Also, one of the questions it won't be it won't be asked. One of the questions that was asked was asked by David Quinn, and I think it is a this perfectly reasonable question to ask. Why should we repose faith or confidence in the directions of the WHO? Yes, yes, and we said, I, I believe the answer was that he, we're not here to criticise the WHO, but we believe in them and their directives, uh, which is a bit odd because we've broken several of the things they've said. I think the WHO is still saying there should be no travel restrictions. You know what, the WHO, instead of listening to the WHO, Joe, who should listen to Gary? We should listen to Taiwan. Who are having a fantastic day. They, uh, for those who haven't seen it, the Taiwanese government have announced that they will be sending 16 million medical masks to Europe, the United States, and other countries who were nice enough to acknowledge that Taiwan exists. You should just explain a slight context there. Once upon a time, everybody in the world pretty well, possibly Moscow, I don't know, almost everyone in the world recognised the state of the Republic of China, which was and is Taiwan, set up by uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists after they fled mainland China when Mao took over. But bit by bit by bit over the years, the political, financial, whatever, of uh, China 
has separated more and more and more countries from that position, and now there are increasingly few countries that recognize the existence of Taiwan as a state. But you're talking about masks. Did you see the figure, Gary, for the number of masks that they were making a day and now what they and how they to what they're going to make the ramped up figures? Yeah, so they they were a couple of weeks ago they were importing masks, and now they are making. Well, when they made the announcement last week, they were making thirteen million masks a day, and they're aiming for fifteen. Thirteen million a day to go to fifteen million a day. And I bet they make good masks. Uh, there have been no quality complaints that I have seen. And these are donations, whereas everything from China was actually a purchase. Apart from that shipment from Huawei that turned out to have been infected with COVID-19. That was a donation. <laughs> Talk about, you know, taking the piss. The, Ita- the Italians... Before said the horrible outbreak had occurred or begun to occur in Italy, had sent a shipment of gear as a donation to China, which the Chinese have now sold to Italy. You know that's not what you call good international citizenship, is it, Gary? Well, I mean, there are also there was also the report that when the, and I I'm not sure if this is correct. But I will look into it. I might write it up if it is. There was the report that the in China you couldn't get a flight into Wuhan, and from Wuhan you couldn't get a flight anywhere into China. But you could still internationally fly to and from Wuhan, um, which is to say the Chinese isolated the people of Wuhan from every other part of China, but not from anywhere outside China. Now, I was told much the same thing by a mate of mine who's in the upper end of the handbag business. And he said that when they'd stopped all the internal flights, you could still fly from Wuhan to Rome. And his comment was, you know, <laughs> was basically, what the fuck, lads? You know, that's not the act of a friend. No, it does have a sort of, mm, we're taking you all down with us ring to it. And you know what? I, I mean, I would, I, I would not be surprised were it to be. If it is true, then it would certainly be. Uh, <laughs> it's something else to put on the list of, Things that bad China did. Oh, come on. Yeah, that, that list is, is getting way the longer. Ta- the Taiwanese, um, not just the masks, they're, I mean, for example, their capacity to control the outbreak, pretty impressive. Their capacity to control the outbreak, the way other countries are talking about them, the fact that they were totally locked out of the WHO, the WHO admitted to The Economist that they didn't even respond to Taiwan's questions. When Taiwan wrote to them going, hey, about this new disease, uh, what should we be doing? And the WHO just didn't respond. And also, the Chinese came to a different opinion to the WHO pretty early on in the game. Uh, I, I think their response, they summed up their response as just, you can't trust the WHO and you can't trust tri- China. Lock it down. Yeah. And uh, so far, so good. And- that's worked fantastically, given that they are very close to China, no. geographically. Indeed. Uh, they're just there's something straits. I can't remember. I used to know the name of straits, where American ships every so often go up and down just to remind the Chinese that they have a mutual defense agreement with Taiwan. So that could be where it all ends, in the straits between Taiwan and China. 
But they are they are playing, I mean, politically a blinder. Um, the WHO looks terrible. China looks terrible. Taiwan is actually being talked about as a place by other countries. Mm. Well, uh, well Adam, I'm sure we will come back to it at some stage again and more than once. But if and when this plague passes away and the world begins to return to normal, it's going to be very interesting to see where uh, China fits into the world after this and how people relate to it. And it's not just, I mean, we're going to, there's a, are we having the interview tomorrow? I don't know. We, we For the listener, we were talking about the Ethan uh, Gutman interview. Uh, Paddy did it there. It is, I mean, it's two hours long. So what I think we'll do is, instead of putting it up tomorrow as planned, I might say about cutting like a trailer or something into it, and then maybe premiere it on uh, YouTube, uh, which premiering something on YouTube for if the listener isn't aware. Basically, you put it up as if it was a live broadcast and people can watch it in real time at the same time. And you can comment on it and you can you know, chat about it on the on YouTube as you're watching it in real time. I, d- I don't know. Um, the problem I have with it is that I know a lot of this stuff already. So I'm trying to pull it apart and figure out what people are actually interested well, in. My, what I was going to, the reason I brought it up is because <coughs> there, there comes a point in the organization of a state where you have to ask, or you should ask at least, at what point does a regime become so evil that you just have to stop doing business with it? You know, we've been used to people getting very head up in the collar about divestment from Israel for not buying footballs from factories in Pakistan or Apple products from... You know, there's going to be questions about China. Yeah, and (laughs) we have. And the Israelis, for instance, will not charge you €30,000 for the corneas uh, of someone's eyes that they will kill on demand for you. And that's that's what they're doing. I mean, and this, this isn't this is not like some kind of made up freaky conspiracy. This is not a tin hat kind of tin hat guy. No, no, there there was there was a full international um, or private tribunal sitting in London that looked at this and basically came to the conclusion that this is absolutely happening on a massive scale. Um. I've talked to a number of experts about it, and there's no doubt to them that it's happening. It's just the scale of it. And there's also no doubt to them that the higher-ups of the Communist Party are involved, and the party itself is either officially allowing the practice, or is simply looking the other way. Uh, But I mean, you have a situation now where every uh, ugger over 12 has been tested for tissue matching. Now, we should point out that in the same region of China where the Uyghur are, Han Chinese are not tested. No, they're not. But there was a what is a great quote from the Gutman interview, because I, as I, I watched it just to try to timestamp it, which it was, um, in the rest of the world, if you are on a tra- if if you have an issue where you need an organ transplant, you wait for the organs. In China, the organs wait for you. <laughs> That's grotesque yeah but no they're they're absolutely killing people to order um because and and they advertise in english as well some of the hospitals 
that you can go there and you can get a kidney transplant that will be a perfect match uh, and you can get it within a certain turnaround. And there's no way to do that because it's very, you actually have, there's quite a lot of matching to get an organ that won't reject. Yeah. So there would be no way that you could advertise that and have been doing for years unless you had a way of absolutely being sure that you could get that organ. They also, uh, one of the other things that Gutman said is that, um, and this is in his book, so it's it's in his book fully documented, but just in the interview, was that um, in certain cases, it, particularly high-ranking members of the party or people who are willing to pay heavily, you can have a four-hour turnaround. You know, I think that, I would listen, we'll wait for I mean, until the, the interview's up where they would have maybe a, a, a more in-depth discussion. Just mm. reflect on what that means. Whether they're using the Falun Gong as a reservoir or if they're using ethnic minorities. In this case, essentially, but, the Uyghurs are being treated like a reserve of animals for for harvest. Effectively, but he did make the point that um, if you're going to do this, if you're going to break someone down, you're able to take most of their organs. The average human body is worth over half a million just in the organs inside it. But he, it's also happening to Tibetan monks, house Christians, and to Falun Gong. It used to only happen to convicted criminals. But what the Chinese state realized is that the Falun Gong don't smoke and drink and are very big into physical exercise. Uh, Uyghurs also don't smoke and drink, or drink. Well, some smoke, some drink. They're not really... Their version of Islam isn't terribly strident, although it's becoming more so as people crack down mm-hmm. on them. And house Christians, because they tend to be healthy. And hepatitis is rife in Chinese prisons. Hepatitis is, is rampant, yeah. So there is just a little bit of... Uh, not luck to the Chinese state, but just chance that they have these people they want gone who are very healthy. Yeah. But he, uh, he was uh, he was saying that when he, the Uyghurs, he's trying to figure out how many of those are disappearing. And he says between 2.5 and 3% of them are disappearing. Now, there are over a million of them in the camps, so that is a large number. Yeah. But he was saying he was interviewing people who were coming out of the camps, and he'd say, look, I have a really awful question to ask you, but just, were the women who were disappearing sexually attractive? And he was saying that they would say no. They, a lot of them, some of them, but most of them weren't. And saying, "Oh, how would you describe them?" And they would sort of go, uh, "Healthy, Stra- strapping." Yes, kind of people around twenty-eight, the perfect age for organ harvesting. I just leave, we'll, we'll leave there now. But I just think it's something when you start to think about it. The more you think about it, the more incredibly horrible, horrific it comes. But there is you, there is one thing I wanted to briefly touch on before we go. And it's an article that came out in the Irish Times at the start of the month, and I totally missed it. But it's interesting. Um, I think the listener might be interested in this. It was written by a guy called Liam Herrick. Mm-hmm. Liam Herrick is the executive director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. And it is titled, There is no conflict between human rights and public health measures. Oh, yeah. And I just want to give you a couple of quotes from that. Because the ICCL are the group tasked with protecting the civil liberties of Ireland. Now, I think... They're a useless shower of bastards correct. who have no concern for human rights. They're terrible researchers. We, I think we talked before, they wrote a paper on um, 
whether or not guards should be given security cameras. And they literally say in it that there is no evidence that they were, which either means they didn't find the evidence, which there's a ton of, yeah, or they lied, in which either case, they're not worth existing. Um, now, I would make the point there. To say that they disagree with the evidence is perfectly fine. To say there is no evidence is bullshit. But anyway, also they they support a ton of stuff, which is massively at odds with civil liberties. Here is a couple of quotes. So he says people complaining about the restrictions on um, what you can do during the lockdown. People saying that they are offensive to human rights or that there is an issue with human rights. He says that those people have a fundamental misunderstanding of human rights. Oh, yeah. That human rights are not about individualism. Okay, so, no, hold on. Give me a minute with that. Human rights, individual human rights, based on the sacred value of the individual, they have nothing to do with individual. Okay, yeah, okay. It's it's good stuff so far, Gary. Good. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. Go on. Mm, mm. They talk about how these, you know, the, the powers are radical. And, but then they say, that, you know, we've seen radical state action to protect access to housing and basic income. The human right to housing is now being directly vindicated by the state, with those rights trumping fiscal considerations and the established orthodoxy about legal protection of property. <laughs> the established yeah. orthodoxy about the legal protection of property. In other words, no more fucking private property, lads. Oh, yeah. Then they say that we've seen eviction bans, rent freezes, the uh, two-tier healthcare dissolving. And then he says, we are glimpsing what a system of laws and policies that are built from real respect for universal human rights might look Sorry, like. Sorry, rewind, rewind. No. What, what group had said, is saying all this? The uh, executive director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Are the Irish Council for saying... Only good things about old-fashioned lefty shite, but actually doesn't care about rights or liberties at all. These are the same people that don't believe in free speech. Remember that. These are the people who don't believe in free speech. Uh, I just I love the idea of the executive director of the of the of any civil liberties body standing up and saying, "Now you may think that the fact you can't leave your home and that the state is directly controlling nearly af- every aspect of your life might, in some way." have a human rights element to it. But you'd be wrong. If you were down in Wexford, God bless you, and you were staying in one well, your holiday homes near the beach of Bellamine, the guards the guards could come around, knock at the door and say, No, you're from Dublin, you should be you get your car, you drive back to Dublin immediately. That's not a civil liberties issue, Gary. I know, and also the line, we are glimpsing what a system of laws and policies that are built from real respect for universal human rights might look like. Glimpsing Glimpsing, like through the, the in the distance, the high shining city on the hill, we can see it through the fog and through the smoke, but we know it's there. Oh, Jesus! Get me a bucket. To which I would say, Liam, if this is your idea of what laws and policies built from real respect for universal human rights might look like, you're a fucking lunatic. It's also possibly, and I say this in the best possible way, a fascist. <laughs> because what we're actually talking about, Gary, here are not laws. We're talking about the absence of laws, the sus- the suspension of the laws. The state can do anything for what it defines as the common good, and not in that sort of soft Adrian Vermeule 
Common oh, good constitutionalism oh, go burr. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not that sort of soft. We want to do it all nice for everybody because it's going to be lovely. No, the state gets to do what it wants. And eventually, do you know what, Gary, if the state does with that kind of stuff? It ends up shooting you in the head when you don't do what it wants. And we have plenty of experience. Listen, we have that. You know, we were talking about China. It's still there. And China's not the worst. I mean, let's face it. North Korea does not have coronavirus. And there's a reason for that. Well, it's because they shot everyone who had it. <laughs> the causes. It was considered like it was, it was an act of treason against the state. So they just shot them. You know, in fairness, it does solve any concerns you have about overwhelming the ICUs. I mean, it is one of those things where you have to, whatever you say about it, you do have to then end with, but it did work. It worked, you know. It was effective. And, you know, in this day and age, when, when a lot of people feel politics doesn't work, you have to say, well, kudos when it does. The Irish Council is a constant disappointment. There's, there's no reason dancing around there. There's a lot of very lovely middle-class people who don't actually seem to believe anything about civil liberties, but hold a very odd conception of human rights, which is popular with international NGOs for the most part, where you don't really have human rights as an individual. I would, at the horrible recipients, actually, very serious from them. They don't actually believe in human rights at all. Not as people have understood the concept of human rights since the time of the Enlightenment. Rather, they are Marxists, and Marx explicitly rejects the notion of rights, because rights, the notion of rights is a bourgeois, individualistic notion coming out of the Enlightenment, and before that came out of English empiricism and the Glorious Revolution and all that stuff with John Locke and people like that. It's a bourgeois, individualistic notion, and they reject it. The only rights that exist are the rights that inhere in the group, and in the group in this case usually means the proletariat, but not now these days it depends whatever, whatever problematized group you happen to be. Are you poor? Are you black? Are you a woman? Are you gay? Are you a transsexual black gay woman unicorn? And if you are, you probably win the prize. Oh, I will say one thing that um, I did uh, I didn't note because Mr. Herrick put this up on Twitter. So I was just interested to see who would like and retweet it. But one of the people who retweeted it was Task, the uh, progressive think tank. A couple of uh, professors from law professors, in fact, from TCD. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The human rights people are fucking terrible to a person. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. Uh, but, they, but, you know, we're again shooting them in the head, Gary, because that's the Korean way. And even though it works, you have to feel that there may be a cost down the road. Yeah. I, yeah. That's why you use it. That's why, I mean, you know, I will be first to admit that you, you shouldn't do these things. But on the other hand, throwing communists from helicopters is a time-honored tradition. You know, and we don't have enough traditions anymore. We really don't. You know? It's you know, it's it's hard being a man of of integrity. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I, I'm I'm hearing I'm hearing helicopters. I'm hearing the ride of the Valkyries. I'm loving the smell of napalm in the morning. All these things are happening. 
I'm kind of feeling Josie Wales as well. So maybe this is a good moment to say happy Easter to the dear listener. And we will be back in Easter week indeed. So anyway, as I say, it's time to maybe go release the dear listener back into the wild and frolic with the lambs, the Easter lambs. And to say have a happy Easter. Uh, we hope you're all staying safe and well. And we will be back in the week. Sicut resurrexit. Alleluia, alleluia. Happy Easter. All the best. <laughs>